The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Somebody came in the school and took him. This week, I'll be telling you about the disappearance of seven-year-old Kyron Horman. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Savi Island, Oregon is the largest island along the Columbia River and one of the largest river islands in the U.S. It's 26,000 acres and is approximately 10 miles northwest from downtown Portland. Most of the island is in Multnomah County, but a portion does fall in Columbia County. It has its own lake called Sturgeon Lake, located in the north-central part of the island. The island was home to the Multnomah Band of the Chinook Tribe. When the British landed on the island in 1792, they were greeted offshore by 23 canoes of armed Multnomah. In 1805, the Lewis and Clark Expedition landed and named the island Wapato Island. During the next decades, the Native Americans of the island would weather outbreaks of smallpox, syphilis, measles, and tuberculosis, and in 1829, a horrifying epidemic of a fever known as the ague sweeps through the natives. By 1832, so much of the Native American population had died that they were nearly extinct. Dr. McLaughlin of the Hudson's Bay Company removed the survivors and burned all the settlements. In the following years, American and Brits established trading posts on the island attempting to claim it, until Hudson's Bay Company established dairies on the island and renamed it Savi Island, after their manager who was French-Canadian. The Oregon Trail increased the island population and was inhabited by many people who came from the Midwest. In the 20s during Prohibition, 
Cargo ships from Canada would offload liquor onto motorboats in international waters and meet bootleggers on Savi Island. In 1940, the Savi Island Wildlife Area was acquired by the state of Oregon, and the Savi Island Bridge opened in 1950, closing down the Savi Island Ferry, the last ferry in the Portland metro area. The bridge was replaced in 2008. These days, Savi Island is predominantly farmland and a wildlife refuge. It is a popular location for pumpkin picking, hunting geese, and kayaking. According to the 2000 census, there are just over 1,000 year-round residents. There are three beaches open to the public, including one that is clothing optional. In 2018, an alcohol ban was put in place on the beaches from May 1st to September 30th each year. And that is Savi Island. I had never even heard of it, but it comes into play in the case, and when I looked into it, I was super intrigued. Now I want to visit. Let's head to the story. Kyron Horman was born on September 9th, 2002 at St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, to parents Desiree Young and Kane Horman. During the pregnancy with Kyron, Desiree and Kane divorced, citing irreconcilable differences. The two co-parented seemingly well and had joint custody of Kyron up until 2004. At that point, Desiree was diagnosed with kidney failure that required an extensive medical intervention, so she moved to Canada for a brief stint to receive treatment, and Kane took full custody of Kyron. The medical bills piled up and she needed help in her recovery, so Desiree moved in with family in Medford, Oregon, while Kane was living near Portland. This was over four hours away from each other, so Kyron lived primarily with Kane, where he would be enrolled in school, but Desiree was very much involved and had parenting time with him as well. In 2007, Kane married a substitute school teacher named Terry Moulton in Kauai. In December 2008, Terry gave birth to the couple's daughter and also brought a son from a previous relationship to the blended family. Desiree also remarried to a man named Tony Young, who was and still is a detective for the Medford Police Department. On the morning of June 4, 2010, Kyron was taken to school by his stepmom, Terry, to set up his science fair project that would be on display later that afternoon. Kyron was a seven-year-old second grader at Skyline Elementary. She took the last known photo of Kyron in front of his project about tree frogs, and she left him in the school hallway to walk to his classroom at around 8.45 a.m. The two were confirmed to have been at the school by the PTA president, who saw them at about 8.15 setting up the display and looking at other science fair exhibits. From what I understand, there were multiple end-of-the-year events happening that day, so it wasn't a traditional school day. The billboard outside of the school read, June 4th, IB Inquiry Expo from 8 to 10, Talent Show 1 to 2.45. Kyron was supposed to participate in both the morning science fair and the afternoon talent show. At 10 a.m., the students were sent to their classrooms to start the school day, and Kyron's teacher reported him absent to the office. The school had not contacted the family, as Terry had told the office earlier in the week that Kyron would be absent on Friday as he had a doctor's appointment. However, when asked about this later, she stated that this was a miscommunication and that the doctor's appointment was actually the following Friday. So the office had marked this as an excused absent, which didn't prompt a phone call home. That afternoon at 1.21 p.m., Terry posted the picture of Kyron at the science fair to her Facebook page. The picture would go on to be the main photo used in the media, 
as it was the most recent picture of Kyron, and he was wearing the clothes that he was last seen in. Kane worked from home for the afternoon and walked to meet Kyron at the bus stop at 3.30 p.m. to walk him home. When the bus arrived, Kyron wasn't on it, and he began talking with the driver and other students, who informed him that Kyron had not been at school that day. He then made a frantic call to the school to try and locate his son, and after hanging up, the secretary made the first 911 call at 3.46 p.m. to report Kyron missing. Which, good on the school. I have three elementary-aged kids, and I know there are a lot of miscommunications at school drop-off and pickups, and especially since he came from a blended family, your first impression would likely be that there was a miscommunication between the parents or something. So the fact that the secretary immediately called 911 was a good call on her part. About 45 minutes later, the Portland Police and Multnomah County Sheriff's Office arrived at the school and the Hormans' home simultaneously, and the investigation was underway. The school sent out a mass text to all of the parents stating, Kyron Horman did not arrive home today. That gave me a chill. I can't even imagine receiving a text like that as a parent. Within a few hours of the 911 call, a search and rescue team was dispatched, beginning at the Skyline Elementary School, working their way out, and the FBI was notified of the situation at around 7 p.m. The search resumed the following day at 5 a.m., and additional search and rescue volunteers were called in. The Associated Press published the first news report about the missing seven-year-old that morning after an email was sent out with the subject line, Sheriff's Office Continues Search for Missing Kyron Horman, along with the picture of him. A missing child page was published by the site helpfindmychild.net. The first press conference was held at noon, and authorities were not yet calling it a criminal investigation. Later in the afternoon, the school used the mass communication system again, sending a text requesting that all of the K-8 through students meet at the school the following day for a debriefing from the local and federal authorities. The FBI and National Guard arrived in the late afternoon and performed an extensive grid search of the area that once again turned up no sign of Kyron. A Facebook page for supporters of Kyron and the family was created that evening and is still active to this day. The following morning, which was Sunday, June 6th, 50 law enforcement officers interviewed 300 students at Skyline Elementary, and a Quantico-based FBI agent arrived to begin profiling Kyron. Family members and supporters began passing out flyers stating the description of Kyron as 3 foot 8 inches tall, 50 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair, last seen wearing black cargo pants, white socks, and worn black Skechers tennis shoes with orange trim. That evening, authorities changed the case to a missing endangered child, but did not go as far to label it as a kidnapping. The following Monday, 18 more certified search and rescue volunteers continued to search around the school and into the nearby neighborhood. One tactic that police used that I found interesting was that they had officers posted outside the school just to observe cars and write down every single license plate number. So say if it was a stranger abduction and they were able to go to trial someday, they might be able to see, oh, that person's license plate was recorded multiple times driving by the school and they didn't have a reason to do so. The school district brought in extra counselors and opened a counseling hotline and resumed classes that morning. On Tuesday, June 8th, a reward fund was created and announced on Facebook. On Wednesday, June 9th, an FBI spokesperson said that the Horman family is not speaking with the media because they do not believe it's in the best interest of finding Kyron. 
But at a later press conference, a statement from Kyron's family was read, and it stated, Kyron's family would like to thank people for support and interest in finding their son. The outpouring of support and continued effort strengthens their hope. We need for folks to continue to assist us in our goal. Please search your properties, cars, outbuildings, sheds, etc. Also check with neighbors and friends who may be on vacation or may need assistance in searching. There are a lot of resources here to help you search, so please don't stop. It is obviously a difficult time and they want to speak to the public so you can hear it from Kyron's family as they come together to share their message. Their objective is to keep the focus on Kyron and not about anything else. More search and rescue teams from around the area continued in the search, and on Friday, June 11th, the family appeared at their first press conference. Desiree with her husband Tony by her side and Kane with his wife Terry at his. The sheriff's office also asked for people to hold off on donations of food, water, and other supplies for the search and rescue teams as they had already collected way more than they would need. Just over a week after Kyron's disappearance, the investigation shifted once again and was now classified as a criminal investigation. At this point, the search had become the largest in Oregon state history with over 1,300 volunteers from Oregon, Washington, and Northern California searching the two-mile radius around the school. And that search ended on Sunday the 13th. The following Tuesday was the last day of the 2009-2010 school year. And also, the police released a new version of the last picture of Kyron, taken at the science fair. In this photoshopped image, Kyron's glasses were removed to show what he would look like without them. This caused rumors and speculation that maybe they had found his glasses, and that is why they released the altered image, but it was never confirmed. On Thursday, June 17th, another rumor blew up on Facebook and through the community that Kyron's body had been found. However, this was not true. The sheriff's office handed out flyers to each family from Skyline Elementary with pictures of Kyron, Terry, and the pickup they were driving that day, hoping it might spark a memory. And the following week, the Horman family released three videos and 200 more pictures of Kyron to the media. His parents also appeared on four network television programs trying to bring attention to their son's case. On Saturday, June 26th, two 911 calls were made from the Horman residence. The first call came in at 5.17 p.m. and was classified as a threat call, and a sheriff's deputy responded. The second call came in at 11.39 p.m. and was classified as a custody issue. Turns out that Kane had moved out of the home earlier in the day and took his 19-month-old daughter he shared with Terry with him. Two days later, this information was made public, and a People magazine article was released detailing the story. In the article, Terry's dad stated that she had been interrogated multiple times, up to six hours per sitting, and had been subjected to multiple property and vehicle searches. He stated that the probability that Terry would be arrested for Kyron's disappearance was about 50-50. That same afternoon, Terry was approached at her home by a reporter for the Oregonian, and she denied that her husband and daughter had moved out, saying, everything's good, and giving a thumbs up. She said, we heard that rumor, it's just a rumor that needs to be squelched, everything's fine. Following this statement, Kane, Desiree, and her husband, Tony, asked the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office to release a statement saying they were cooperating with the investigation, and Terry's name was noticeably absent. Terry was also served with a restraining order and a divorce petition on this day as well. 
The restraining order was placed on Terry, forbidding any contact with Kane or their daughter. The following day, Terry had the restraining order and divorce petition documents sealed by the court so the press could not access them. She also hired a spendy hotshot defense attorney. By Thursday, July 2nd, just shy of a month after Kyron's disappearance, a reporter for the Oregonian discovered that the investigation had cost Multnomah County $300,000 already, and on July 4th, another bombshell article hit the Oregonian. Turns out, just before the June 26th abrupt departure of Kane from the family home, a landscaper who worked for Terry had come forward to police to inform them that Terry had offered him money in exchange for killing her husband. This had occurred about six months before Kyron's disappearance. Terry had hired the landscaper to work around their property, and Kane wasn't aware of it. He thought Terry was doing the yard work. At this point, Terry was still living in the home that Kane had owned before the marriage, and he petitioned the court to force Terry out, and also claimed that she had shared sealed legal information and had attempted to kidnap their daughter. The judge sided with Kane, and Terry moved to Roseburg with her parents, while Kane and their daughter moved back into the family home. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The Upper Left Corner merch store is open. Head on over to UpperLeftPodcast.com to check out the selection of shirts, tanks, crewnecks, and hoodies. My personal favorite is the tie-dye tee that my friend Sarah helped me design. Check out the new logo and see if you can spot the PNW Easter eggs. And keep checking back for new items. I'm working on wine glasses, coffee mugs, and stickers. Thanks for your support. Every year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. That's not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance and mental health. Just those two. And these deaths are completely preventable. That is why Jay Schiffman, a public speaker and coach, has started the podcast Choose Your Struggle. Jay interviews people with lived experience on topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery to help end the stigma and normalize the difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. There are massive system changes that need to happen, but until we can have honest conversations around these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. This is why Jay started the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He tells his story as a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. He's taking a second chance at life and making it meaningful by using this podcast as a platform. With over 100 five-star ratings, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is for everyone, from those struggling with substance or mental health issues to the people who love them. Check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. And now back to the story. On July 26th, Kane filed a court motion to order Terry to disclose the source of the $350,000 retainer fee for her defense attorney. Kane's attorney, who filed the motion, stated that those funds would be considered a marital liability and Kane would be entitled to half of the funds to use for his attorney fees and costs. His attorney submitted the source of the information where Terry agrees that she paid $350,000 and it was in the form of text messages between Terry and Kane's good friend. Not only did she disclose that information, the entire steamy and embarrassing text exchange was entered, and the press got a hold of it. I read through most of it so you don't have to, because my goodness, it's embarrassing. The parts that made me LOL were when Terry said, 
I have never dated anyone who I couldn't bench their weight. To which the man replied, I weigh 180. And she said, I can do 195. Then she said, you'd be toast. I'm stronger than you. He says, I like that you're strong. And she says, we should arm wrestle. Then she sends a picture, which was obviously redacted. But the message sent with the redacted picture says, that's only the left one. And the man replies, ha ha, now that's a close up. Things escalate from there. I'm not going to read any of the more steamy things because my dad is my biggest fan and I don't want him to pass out on his commute. I'll link the text combo in my show notes, though, if you are curious what she said. The press had a field day and began digging farther into Terry's past. And here's what they dug up. This timeline is from the Oregonian, which I always get super excited when I find an Oregonian article on what I'm looking into. They do such amazing research. So Terry was adopted by two teachers in the mid-70s in California, and she said in a Facebook post that she has known she wanted to be a teacher from the age of seven. She has a bachelor's and master's in education, but has never obtained a full-time teaching position. In 1982, the family moved to Medford, and she had a nice middle-class upbringing, and as the only child appeared to have been doted on by both of her parents. She was a good athlete, and her dad, who loved track and field, coached her up and came to every event she ever had. In 1991, she married for the first time to a man named Ron Tarver Jr., and they moved to Albany and ran a storage facility before buying into a Chubby's restaurant franchise with money given to them by her parents. This venture didn't go well, and the couple and her parents sued Chubby's in 1994, saying the company misrepresented the investment needed to make the franchise work. According to Ron Tarver Jr., the lawsuit ended in the couple receiving a $250,000 settlement. The couple decided to have a child, but Terry was having a difficult time getting pregnant. According to a later Facebook post, in her 20s she thought that she could not get pregnant, but ended up giving birth to two children. In January of 1994, her son James Logan was born. He was named after James Bond, and Logan was her mother's maiden name. The following year, Terry and her husband divorced, both accusing the other of infidelity. She gained custody of their son, and Tarver agreed to pay child support. Terry moved in with her parents in Roseburg and attended McDonald's Fast Food Management School and worked at the Cottage Grove location. She moved on quickly from her November 95 divorce and married an old high school flame named Richard Ecker in August of 1996. Two years later, Ecker adopted James. Tarver, who had been struggling financially, agreed to give up his parental rights in order to not have to pay child support. This was a big red flag to Terry's new in-laws, who saw right through her and felt she was manipulative. On March 29, 1998, Terry was hit in her car by a drunk driver at around 2 a.m. in Springfield, and the accident had lasting effects. She had a pinched nerve in her spine and crippling migraines. Although she was struggling with physical pain, she decided to go to school and obtained her bachelor's in elementary education, which was encouraged by her parents and her father-in-law, who was a high school teacher. Both Richard and Terry wanted to go back to college, but they could only afford one of them to attend at a time, and Terry convinced Richard that she should go first. Ecker claims that he paid for her education. And when she graduated in the year 2000, the couple moved to Beaverton in search of a teaching job for Terry. 
The following year, the couple bought a house in Aloha with financial help from her parents. Then in March, she was hired as a substitute teacher in the Hillsborough School District. Through mid-June 2002, she held teaching jobs at Eastwood, Mooberry, and Lenox Elementary Schools, each lasting several months at a time. A former colleague described Terry as dedicated but very strict. She was organized and very in control, and she clearly liked kids and liked teaching. But she did irritate some people. She subbed for a teacher on maternity leave, and when the teacher came back, the class was completely reorganized, and she had thrown out some of her materials. At this point, things weren't going well at home. She and James moved in with a co-worker and her child, who was also going through a divorce. This roommate said things were going well at first, but in the end, she was a bad roommate, citing that Terry would move her things and rearrange the furniture. One day, Terry moved a bookshelf into the yard with all of the roommate's books, stating that she needed more room for her things, and it rained and ruined them. The roommate stated that she seemed absolutely unaware of why that was a problem. In January 2002, Terry and Richard divorced, and she got primary custody of James, and they had an informal agreement that he would pay her $169 a month in child support. A year later, she went to the Washington County courts to ask for more child support. Remember, this isn't his child. She had him adopt the son she had from her first marriage. His payments were bumped up to nearly $550 a month. He went to Terry's door to ask her to lower the payment as it took up a good chunk of his monthly income, and she seemed agreeable and said she would talk to the courts about it. The following day, the sheriff's office called him to tell him he needed to stop harassing his ex-wife. He has not seen James since that phone call and has paid an estimated $46,000 in child support from then until James turned 18. But James did spend time with his biological father, who gave up his rights, therefore avoiding child support. In the spring of 2002, Terry Horman hit the gym, working out at Bally Total Fitness in Aloha for hours at a time. In mid-June, a seven-month substitute teacher's job at Lenox Elementary School ended. That same month, she met Kane Horman at a restaurant when he was out with friends, and the two started dating. Kyron was born three months later. In December, so six months after they met, Terry moved in with Kane, bringing her son James. The custody agreement when Kyron was born was that Desiree had primary custody. She would drop Kyron off to daycare during the day, Kane would pick him up from daycare, and have two hours with him before Desiree would pick him up and have him for the night. But this agreement was changed in 2004 when Desiree moved to Canada for a time to receive medical treatment for kidney failure. In 2003, Terry earned a master's degree of art education from Pacific University in Forest Grove and was hired as a sub for the Hillsborough School District until 2006. Unable to land a teaching job, she took an assistant manager position at the Red Robin in Sherwood where she worked for about nine months. In 2005, she began hitting the gym heavily again. She transformed her body and began to compete in bodybuilding competitions. Kane said he had noticed a change in her behavior, saying she was self-centered and short-tempered. She wasn't eating a lot of food, and she was exercising twice a day, up at 4 a.m. and not sleeping well at night. So she was just generally irritable towards everyone around her. According to Kane, she was also consuming over-the-counter stimulants, such as fat burners and high doses, and she had lost 62 pounds in a four-month period, going from 185 to 123. 
She competed in the Emerald Cup bodybuilding competition in Bellevue in April and took fourth place in the category for women over 35. On July 10, 2005, she was pulled over by police on I-5 near Woodburn at about 6 p.m. and was given a breath test that registered a .15, which was almost double the legal limit. She pled guilty to reckless endangerment for DUI because she also had her 11-year-old son in the car with her. She paid a $600 fine and completed a diversion program. Kane stated that her attitude changed for the better and their home life improved after her drunk driving arrest. They visited Disney World and Israel on family vacations and they worked out life as a blended family as they had scheduled a regular handoff for all the kids at Sherry's restaurant in Springfield. Terry and Kane would meet Desiree and her husband Tony to exchange Chiron and Terry would exchange James with her first husband. Kane and Terry married in 2007 in matching swimsuits in Kauai, and Kane gave his bride a new candy apple red Ford Mustang GT the following Mother's Day. She put a vanity plate on it that read RDSQRL, shorthand for her nickname, Red Squirrel. Terry began working as an assistant manager at Newport Bay Restaurant in Washington Square. She became pregnant in 2008 which thrilled Terry and shocked Kane since he thought they had planned to not have children. Terry gave birth to their daughter in November of 2008. She posted tons of pictures of her baby girl on Facebook, while at the same time, Kane said she was suffering through postpartum depression. Her behavior changed again, and she would lose her patience with James and Kyron, and even as the baby got a little older, she would get extremely frustrated with her as well, like if the baby wouldn't go to sleep. Terry began hitting the gym again. She also complained that Kane was controlling of their money, which he admitted to, because money was tight and she was spending it like water, and she didn't check with him before making large purchases. In February, Terry sent James to Roseburg to live with her parents. Kane was on a business trip, and she didn't even consult him about it, just informed him that they had gotten in a fight and she called her dad to come get him. James states that he took it all in stride, as he and his mother had moved around his whole childhood, and he excelled after he moved in with his grandparents. In an interview with the Oregonian in August of 2010, so a few months after the disappearance, James said he was camping with his dad when Kyron disappeared, and that his entire family has been devastated. He said, quote, I've never seen Kane cry until Kyron went missing. James says he hasn't seen his little sister since the family implosion on June 26th and that he misses Kane as well. He said he would like to see him as they lived together for eight years and he was like a father figure to him. And Kane responded saying he hopes to see him soon. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. I am one of the 40 million Americans who grind their teeth at night. There can be many causes such as stress, anxiety, or an abnormal bite, and chronic teeth grinding can lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness, and expensive dental procedures. The best solution for teeth grinding is the custom-fitted night guard. However, it's costly, with the average dentist charging between $200 and $300 per guard, and you will grind through several a year. Using Smile Brilliant's Lab Direct process, you can get the same custom-fitted night guards for as little as $45 per guard. Not only that, but as an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT. 
That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their whitening trays or electric toothbrushes. Head over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. Now that we have a little more background on Terry, let's head back to July 2010. Law enforcement honed in on Terry's inner circle, and when they looked at one of her good friends named Dee Dee, things didn't add up. She had been hired to do some gardening at a residence on the day that Kyron disappeared. She had received a phone call in the middle of her gardening job. She disappeared for about 90 minutes and then came back to finish the project later in the day. On July 26th, Dee Dee would appear before a grand jury in response to a subpoena. And the national spotlight was once again on the case as the story appeared on Dateline NBC that night. The hour-long episode called Little Boy Lost centered around an emotional tour of Desiree's Medford home, including Kyron's bedroom with Batman bedding. Another press conference was held the following day where the sheriff announced that the reward money had been doubled to $50,000 for information in the disappearance of Kyron. He was joined by Kane, Desiree, and her husband, and Terry was once again absent. The grand jury continued on and called many people associated with the case, including multiple friends of Terry and the school principal of Skyline Elementary. During the week of August 7th, a ground search resumed, but in a new area. The 2.2-mile radius around the house that Dee Dee was gardening at on the day of Kyron's disappearance was thoroughly searched. On Tuesday, August 10th, Terry's private emails were obtained by multiple news outlets from the day after Kyron's disappearance, which she describes her timeline for the day that he went missing, saying she went to two different Fred Meyer stores and to the gym for an hour. She also claimed that Kyron had been acting strange for about two weeks prior to his disappearance, saying that he was staring off into space a lot and she had made a doctor's appointment to have him checked for many seizures. This was the doctor's appointment that she had told the office about and caused the confusion of his absence being excused, so there was no call home. She also claims that on the day he went missing, he was seen walking with a male chaperone and two girls, which is something I have not seen corroborated anywhere else. In the fall, something triggered the investigators to take a look at Salvi Island, 10 miles from downtown Portland. They would spend multiple weekends performing searches of the vast wilderness areas that inhabit one of the largest river islands in the United States. Meanwhile, Kane and Terry were duking it out in the courtroom. Terry wanted to be granted visitation of their two-year-old daughter, and Kane requested that Terry undergo a mental evaluation before being allowed visitation. He said Terry was, quote, an emotionally disturbed individual focused on her own needs rather than the needs of Kiara or my missing Kyron. Kane's attorney made it clear that Terry would face multiple depositions and he would subpoena her medical records. This prompted Terry to withdraw her motion for visitation on November 2nd, vowing to never give up to gain custody of her daughter someday. The judge also denied her motion to modify the restraining order currently placed against her to protect Kane and their daughter, and she was prohibited from contacting them. 
The arguments and court motions went back and forth, and ultimately the divorce was delayed by a judge at the request of Terry, pushing it back to January 2011. On November 15th, the united front shown by Kyron's biological parents began to show some strain, as Desiree appeared on the Today Show and said Terry had a severe hatred for Kyron and that she couldn't agree with some of Kane's choices. Kane responded at a press conference later in the day, stating that he had never felt his estranged wife was a threat to Kyron. The following January, the search got more specific to an area in the foothills west of Salvi Island, for what authorities stated were very specific reasons. This search included 50 people and 7 cadaver dogs who scoured the rural areas north and west of Portland. The search focused on several pieces of private property, some logging land, and the Dixie Mountain area. But once again, these efforts turned up no trace of Kyron. Six FBI agents were assigned to work the case full-time in February. The Horman's divorce was again bumped back to June of 2011. In July, it was announced that the task force assigned to Kyron's case would be disbanded, but the FBI, Department of Justice, county prosecutors, and one full-time detective would remain on the case. Also in the summer of 2011, Desiree filed a lawsuit against Terry for $10 million, accusing her of kidnapping Kyron and demanding she either return him or reveal where his body is. Desiree withdrew the lawsuit in August, stating that she didn't want the lawsuit to impede the case. In September of 2012, Kane and Desiree appeared on the Dr. Phil show to air out their differences. Desiree said that although she didn't blame Kane for Kyron's disappearance, he did ignore red flags with Terry in the year leading up to Kyron going missing. It was also revealed that the reason for their divorce was that Kane had been having an affair with Terry while Desiree was pregnant with Kyron. She also speculated that Kane was likely cheating on Terry at the time of Kyron's disappearance, and Kane did not deny it. Some of the red flags included that Kyron was acting out, wanted to spend less time at his dad's house, and when Kane was out of town, Terry would call Desiree to say to come pick him up because he was crying. Desiree even states that Terry had asked her to take custody back of Kyron at one point. Both parents agreed that they believe Terry is responsible for Kyron's disappearance, and Desiree revealed that Terry wrote everything down. From the sounds of it, she kept a journal. And on the day Kyron went missing, she had wrote that she and Kane had stayed up until 3 a.m. fighting, and that she had planned to separate and move back in with her parents in Roseburg. Kane denied that this fight ever occurred and both parents said they think Kyron is still alive, as he likely would have turned up by now if he were dead. On Tuesday, December 31st, 2012, Kane and Terry's divorce was finalized just days before they were set to go to trial. In 2013, Desiree would once again file a lawsuit against Terry, this time claiming custodial interference, and would later drop the suit, stating that although she was dropping it, she could not tolerate the continued silence from Terry. In 2014, Kane was granted permanent sole custody of his daughter, and Terry was allowed supervised visitation. The daughter, who was five at the time, was to attend counseling with a developmental specialist to help her reintegrate with her mother, and Terry was to start contact with writing letters, eventually video conferencing, and progress to two supervised visits a month. The restraining order had been renewed every year since Kyron's disappearance. The little girl was just under two years old when her big brother disappeared. 
In August of 2014, Terry filed a motion to legally change her name to Claire Stella Sullivan, which was denied by a judge who cited the ongoing criminal investigation. She had filed this motion in Douglas County and attempted to change her name to Claire Kissiel in Lane County four months later. The hearing on this name change was canceled by Terry after a petition circulated on Facebook gathered more than 3,000 signatures to deny the name change. At the beginning of 2015, Terry landed her first job since Kyron's disappearance as a caregiver at a small nonprofit that provides care to those with mental illness. Once the press got a hold of this information, the nonprofit was under fire for hiring her, and they defended themselves by clarifying that Terry had applied for the job using her maiden name, but she was clear with them of her situation and she passed a background check and was hired although she quit a short time later, stating that she recognized the impact of her being there had on the small nonprofit after the media had been made aware. She moved to California after leaving this job. In the fall of 2016, Terry appeared on the Dr. Phil show and said her theory was that a man in a white pickup truck had abducted Kyron. This was based on Terry's claim that workers from a 7-Eleven had told her that a mysterious man had asked them what school was closest and they told him Skyline Elementary. This is the first time this theory was brought up and she said the police have never looked into this tip. Dr. Phil then asked her why she failed two polygraphs and walked out on a third. She said she was just as confused and upset as he was about it. She was also confronted about her behavior in the days and weeks after Kyron's disappearance, and he then read the racy text she had sent to another man, who just so happened to be Kane's good friend. She also got her hair done within a few days of the disappearance, just before she appeared at a press conference, and continued going to the gym every day. A body language expert who analyzed the interview felt that Terry lied her way through the most important parts of her Dr. Phil interview. Days after the appearance, Terry was arrested for stealing a handgun from a roommate in an incident that took place in August of 2015. She had apparently taken the handgun out of a safe that was owned by the roommate, and police discovered Terry was in possession of the gun and was charged with a misdemeanor. She was booked in the Yuba County Jail on July 4, 2016, where she posted bond and was released. On November 28, 2016, a restraining order was placed against Terry by a Sacramento man who was listed as her ex-boyfriend. She allegedly threatened the man with a knife, saying if he went to authorities, something would happen to him and his family. The man said they had been living together at the time, and he was not aware of her connection to the Kyron Horman case until late in their relationship. They had met at her job as an adult caregiver. He said he was suspicious of Terry before he knew about Kyron because she kept two phones, one she called a burner phone and one she used for personal use. In December, she had a court hearing on both the gun and domestic violence charges, which she did not show up for. A week later, just before Christmas, she was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. She was pulled over in the Belvedere neighborhood, an upscale area outside of San Francisco, by an officer who noticed a mechanical violation. When he ran the plates, the car came back stolen. The charges were dropped a month later, however, as the prosecutor felt he didn't have enough evidence. The car was registered in Sacramento, so my speculation would be this is an extension of the domestic violence slash restraining order with her ex-boyfriend, 
but that is pure speculation on my part. In 2017, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a.k.a. NICMIC, released an age-to-progressed photo of Kyron at the age of 14. On the day my episodes release, I post pictures from the episode on my Instagram, so you can go check out this age-progressed photo there. My handle is at upperleftcornerpod. Also in 2017, a former boyfriend of Terry came forward and said he had a similar story to tell. She had hired a man to come after him with a gun, but he had escaped the situation and hadn't reported the incident until he was approached by police. The following year, in 2018, Terry married a man named Jose de Jesus Vasquez Martinez on St. Patrick's Day in Nevada. On June 4, 2019, the ninth anniversary of the disappearance, Desiree announced at a press conference that the search had been narrowed down to a 100-acre area. She again reiterated that she felt 100% sure that Terry was responsible for Kyron's disappearance. In 2020, the 10th anniversary was marked during the pandemic. A book called Boy Missing, The Search for Kyron Horman was released by true crime author Rebecca Morris and included excerpts from interviews with Desiree and some bombshell eyewitnesses who claimed they saw Terry walking to the car with Kyron after the science fair. There was also a special on the ID channel called Little Lost Boy. Kane Horman works on the Kyron Horman Foundation, which was founded in September of 2010 and offers support to other missing children's families. They collect donations, and when asked for help from a missing child's family, they provide monetary and emotional support and also help the family in working with the police and the media and launch public awareness campaigns. I'll link the site at upperleftpodcast.com under the Support Victim Causes tab if you are interested in donating or checking out the other cases that they have helped on, which include Allison Watterson and Lindsay Jo Baum. The foundation also holds an annual car show in honor of Kyron, and you can get information for the event there, including the ways to be a sponsor or enter your car in the show. The next event will be in Beaverton on August 1st, 2021. They also have many child safety tips and resources listed on the Kyron Horman Foundation website, which is thekhf.org. Kyron would have graduated high school in 2020. Instead, it was the 10th anniversary of his disappearance. And that is the case of Kyron Horman. Hey guys, just wanted to give you a heads up that my merch store is going to be closing so I can place my order. You have about a week. So if you wanted to get your hands on some upper left corner clothing, you need to go and do that right now. This week's wine that I paired with my true crime is Two Mountain Copeland Vineyard Merlot out of Yakima Valley. The tasting notes are as follows. Aromas of rich toasted barrel, bright, vibrant Bing cherries, blackberry, and coffee on the nose are followed by inviting flavors of ripe red fruits, Hints of toffee and vanilla with hints and soft integrated tannins. This one was so delicious. Cheers and thanks for listening. This has been Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.